welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, August 18th, we are studying Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. In today's text, Solomon notes once again the reality that all people die, but he also describes the hope and the joy that the living have in the true God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. Dr. Teets serves as Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Oh, it is good to be back. Although, let me tell you, since I get to talk about we all die, have a nice day, we all die. Uh, not exactly a happy text to talk about this morning. <laughs> this this one, though, I think has more hopefulness than some. He's I close. mean, he it's close. Moments. He has moments here. So talk to us a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole. We've been going through it for a while now. What do we need to know, especially as we're looking at chapter 9 today? Yeah, I, I truly hope that the previous guests have already resolved all the issues on the book. I mean, uh, if there's ever a book that we don't know what to do with, uh, Christians, Jews alike, have always been uncomfortable with this book, and pretty much everything's debated. Uh, there's no real consensus over what the theology of the book is. There's no, so he's a Koheleth, son of David, whatever that means, even in terms of authorship. And this book has just a different feel than the rest of the canon. So this becomes a really good challenge for us to figure out how on earth do we as Christians even even hear this book? Well, help us to get a, a grips on on that, Dr. Teets. I mean, you've you've been with me now for three months in a row. We talked about Revelation, which is a can be a challenging book for Christians. We talked about Psalm 137, which is a challenging psalm for Christians. Now we've got Ecclesiastes that we don't always know what to do with. Help us, give us at least some some thoughts. What do you? You know, you're teaching the seminary students, and they're going to teach Ecclesiastes in the parish. And rather than tell them, don't do that, how do you, how do you tell yeah, them I, to, I, to approach I, it? And I definitely don't tell them to just do the uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary song or what the birds on Ecclesiastes 3, because uh, the ending kind of, kind of messes up that text. Right. Uh, what I love about this is we're in wisdom literature, and the, the feel of wisdom literature is completely different. Sure. Uh, yeah, my world is, uh, I'm so used to the uh, thus saith the Lord of the prophets, where we have these wonderful, the um Yahweh, bamo, this is what God says. Instead, here we have a, con we're entering into a conversation actually among three books. The books are always contemplating what does wisdom look like. Uh, wisdom for the Nebraska hearers would be your old motto, which was the good life. We will not get into whether or not I might have accused them of false advertising when I got drugged to Nebraska as a kid because I don't want to offend our Nebraska listeners. <laughs> but there is this idea of what is the good life. And you start out with Proverbs, and Proverbs is wonderful. Really straightforward, if-then statements. Uh, Job jumps in, and he is the uh, yeah, wisdom, what's going on here. And he quickly learns his limits. And then we have good old Koheleth. And yes, I'm going to be using... 
not because I try to be an intellectual snob, it's just force a habit. Uh, yeah. Ecclesiastes is always Koheleth to me. Uh, it's perhaps my Hebrew geekiness coming in. You say Koheleth, I say Solomon, tomato, yeah, tomato. Uh, you know, you could always go with Shlomo. The Hebrew name is far cooler than Solomon myself, good old Shlomo. <laughs> uh, but he is, he is entering into a conversation over the absolute limits of what we, apart from Revelation, can discern. So there are two ways to, that I work with this book. One is a phenomenal apologetic work. And that's, been, that's one of those moves that the reformers have done. This has been throughout Christian use of this book. Of here's, here's what Tahara Shemesh is, a life under the sun. Uh, apart from Revelation, apart from God's work, here's how ugly, awful things are. And that's helpful, although the, the problem with it is that you still run into a limit because uh, Koheleth does give us a nice little, uh, we, get, we get the gospel according to Koheleth today. Uh, yeah, eat, drink, love your wife, because your days are limited. So he does actually not completely destroy life under the sun, but does say, okay, you can enjoy it somewhat. So we can see it as an apologetic work, but especially today, it is really a work that invites us to a life of contemplation of our own mortality and death. And, and I get nervous the moment I talk about death because, uh, frankly, I'm hoping people are continuing to listen after I just used the D word twice. Mm. Uh, this is not a topic any of us, or most of us, are even comfortable with. Uh, we as pastors deal with death all the time. It's one of the great joys and challenges of ministry. But for most of most of us, especially go go broader American society, death is a topic that we avoid at all costs. Mm-hmm. And Coelho isn't going to let us get away with it today. No, not at all. I mean, and it, it comes up at several points in the book. Why why is there wisdom in in contemplating our morality and death, even if it's something that we want to avoid? What's the wisdom in in contemplating it? If we define wisdom broadly as okay, rooted in the fear of Yahweh, but also rooted in a fear of Yahweh that allows us to discern how things are set up. Uh, contemplating our own death reminds us of how mortal and finite we really are. Uh, the amount of energy that our society, and I would say, oh, we can't escape the society we're part of, that we spend trying to avoid the death word. Yeah, it's a word that I use very deliberately in my ministry. I do it very deliberately in class. Even the D word is one we just don't want to deal with. But instead, this points us to, one, our days are limited, so what should we do with them? Do the work that God has given us. But also points us and, and really puts us in a place of realizing how wonderful our hope is in Christ. Yeah. Okay. So both the wisdom for this life, how do I use this limited time that I have, knowing that it's going to come to an end, but also then the reality that there is an eternity waiting for me in Christ, it heightens that joy that is mine. And I, I think I think you're right. You know, that, that word death, it does, so we don't like to say it, even, even in the way that we talk about those who've died, you know, so-and-so passed away. And and there is a there is a time for those ways of speaking about death, particularly for us as Christians. We've talked at other places about the the sweet names of death, like when Jesus says that Lazarus is asleep. You know, there's there's a place for that because of that hope. At the same time, that I think that John eleven text is a good one here because Jesus also tells his disciples, "Hey, Lazarus died." Right? I mean, this is the reality too: is that death is the enemy. 
the enemy that Jesus has defeated, yes, but still the enemy. What now in the face of that? I think we are well served to to say the word death and died just to keep that reality in our minds. Yeah, and that's really important. Uh, if you take my major prophets class here at the seminary, I, I make everybody do a funeral sermon. Uh, note to self, don't grade those consecutively. You can only listen to so many funeral sermons. And I admire hom profs. I do it once a year. They do it more times than I do. So I have them do a funeral sermon. And the one rule in my class is if you use any word other than death, if you use any euphemism, I dock you 20% on the sermon. Hmm. Uh, and the reason is that we have to be able to name death as unnatural as the enemy in order to grieve it, but also to be able to rejoice in a resurrection. Unless you, unless death happens, there's no resurrection. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So Solomon's going to keep us very grounded then in that sense, as he talks about the reality here of death and death comes to all. Now, having, having said that, and we'll get to the text, but at least in this text, he does say that it's better than to be living, because there's been other places where he said it's better to be dead or not yet alive. Here, at least, he, he gives us that little more straightforward hope of, of the fact that you are living right now and what you do with that. Although we, the question we're going to have to wrestle with, is he actually sincere or is he being sarcastic? Uh, there, there, uh, one of the challenges with uh, any sort of written text, but especially an ancient one like, Hebrew, like the Hebrew Bible, sure. is that uh, you and I get it when we're bantering in terms of sarcasm. Right. Uh, one, we know the social conventions of our language. We, we just get it because we're both native speakers. At least sometimes, I, sometimes I'm accused of being a native speaker. And then we also are able through inflection to be able to indicate sarcasm. Right. In an ancient text that is distant from us, that always becomes a bit of a challenge over is this sarcastic or not. All right. Well, if you're going to uh, dash my I, hopes today. I, you know, I, you, you should not have had me down as a cynic. Let's take a look at this. This is text. great. I, this is, yeah. All right. So we're in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 to 10 this morning. Here is the text. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, but the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in, all, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. That's our text for today. That's Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 to 10.
it it seems up and down to me as I read it again here right now, Doctor Teets. Some some moments it sounds like he's got some hope, and then others, I I do start to sense maybe some sarcasm even reading it there in English. Yeah, and it already starts out with that first word in uh, nine verse one that really says set the stage. Yeah, he's he he's grappling with mortality. What does it mean that we are creatures doomed to die? Uh, he, he's almost an existentialist, and I don't want to import a later philosophical move on him. But this idea of, okay, where am I? What's going on here? And limited to my own reason, what can I even say? And that mm. first word, though, is telling. Uh, you'll notice in the Hebrew, it's key. It could be, uh, ESV has that as but. It could also be uh, because. Take it as causal. So this actually, this first verse at least, wraps up the previous conversation in chapter 8 where he's been wrestling really with the issue of theodicy. So why do things happen? And uh, you talk about an issue that you can get yourself into trouble on. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people, or however you want to phrase that? Um, the rule of thumb is don't answer it. Uh, he answers it, and his answer is, well, God does it. Okay. So so be joyful. I mean that's that's the answer then that he gives in, in the previous chapter. So how does that how does that carry over then into what he says here in, in that first verse? If it's because all this I laid to heart, how the righteous and the wise their deeds are in the hand of God. How does I mean, is that the answer that he's giving to that question? Is that what you're saying? He has a very harsh answer to the issue of the Odyssey. Uh, Job has a good answer. Job is it's a mystery. Yeah, and I'm oversimplifying Job big time here. Sure. But here it's really a matter of, uh, yeah, God's in charge completely, and you are so small it doesn't even matter. And this notion of finitude, and we're going to be finitude, death, mortality, I mean, that is our theme for this morning, is that it's all a matter of actually good to realize we are horrible, we are absolutely dependent creatures who cannot do anything to save ourselves. And also, at the end of the day, according to our, our friends Shlomo, Solomon, uh, you ultimately really can't even know what's going on big picture-wise. Job and Habakkuk do something very similar. He's a lot more just, uh, I don't know, met, I think, or to, to quote a teenager or whatever. Okay, all right. So, so Solomon's laid this to heart. He's examined it. It's all in the hand of God. And then it sounds like, so whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Is, he, is Solomon there wrestling? So this is what I see, but I don't know if it's because God loves me or God hates me. Is that what he's saying there? Yeah. Uh, excellent move there. The, our dear old, oh, I'm going to go grammatical, uh, which, again, bad for, bad for, bad for the audience. Uh, antecedents of pronouns are a bit of a challenge here. So the question is, uh, the final word, him. Uh, who's the him? Uh, here it's God. So whether these things are love or hate that God's doing, and here hate, take it as, uh, gotta, that's not necessarily a moral term here, uh, absolute rejection. Yeah, we don't know if this is a punishment or care. We just simply cannot know. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, and that's where Solomon's a little more direct, say, than Job with the, the mystery behind it all. Well, I mean, there's some mystery here, I suppose, too. Yeah, and this is a really helpful thing for us as we, as we care for those who are going through uh, ugly tragedies and traumas, as we go through them ourselves. Uh, there's always the danger of wanting to come up with a good answer. I mean, I, I would love to say I'm not guilty of it, but I'm pretty sure we've all had used that great, great pious line 
of uh, God has a plan. Uh, wonderfully pious. Oddly enough, our dear old friend Koheleth or Shlomo Solomon, whatever we want to call him, is essentially saying that. And it's not comforting. Uh, we, we want to say it as pastors and caregivers because, well, it's unsettling to care for those who are going through traumas. And we want to be able to say it ourselves when we're going through traumas because we want to know. But ultimately, the head knowledge just doesn't even help when you're suffering. Yeah, I mean, because Solomon is saying this, likely, later in life, reflecting on it all. So yes, God is in control. God's ha- God's got this plan. This is what I've observed. So, well, might as well enjoy it. That, that He says that on multiple occasions. That's probably not the way to comfort the person in the midst of the hurt and the pain. Yeah, and saying God has a plan, while true, in the crisis, uh, God's plan is not what you want to hear. Uh, you may get to the point... Years later, we can look back and, oh, yeah, I see how all this worked out worked out for God's purpose, or however we want to phrase that. But at the time of looking and wondering what's going on, it's you, you don't have the perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so this is, I mean, this is where, you know, how do I know if it's love or hate? At the moment, I may not. But in the, in the here, I'm going to just jump to the larger context of Scripture then. This is where it's it's absolutely necessity to know Christ crucified and risen, because there you can actually see where the love of God is. Yeah, and this really is life without revel- life without revelation. What are the limits of our reason? And yeah. boy does boy does our friend Solomon let us let us know how limited reason is. Uh, and but but that's also part of what it means to be a responsible scholar. One of the one of the lectures I heard early on in my PhD studies, uh, nothing like having uh, one Dr. Van Hooser, one Dr. Van Gammer, and two giants and the giants, and they gave us the same lecture in the first week as newly minted PhD students. And we're PhD students; we know everything because we're smart and well. We're in a PhD program. Look at us! And they they gave us the same lecture. It was okay. Here we're trained Christian scholars. I mean, we all agreed. It was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, is where I did my PhD, and we're all, yeah, we're all, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, scholars of the church. And the next thing we hear is, you need to practice the cardinal virtue of a scholar, which is humility, realizing that you don't know everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, talking about, you know, we can't know these things, it reminds me of a, a quote from the, the large catechism in the part on the creed. Luther, <laughs> Luther says, now, you know, we could we could never attain to the knowledge of the grace and favor of the Father except through the Lord Christ, who is a mirror of the Father's heart, outside of whom we see nothing but an angry and terrible judge. And it, it seems like Solomon's wrestling with that very thing, right? He, he's just looking at, at God, trying to ascertain him by his wisdom and all these other pursuits, and there's there's he just can't know. The only way you can is if you see what Christ has done. Yeah. What do you know of God apart from Revelation? The answer is what Solomon has here. And then, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh God revealed in Jesus and, and how important it is. And also just the, the beauty of what it means to have, a, to have God's revelation in our hands. Yeah. And something perhaps we take for granted. And here Solomon lets us know really how valuable this gift is. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I mean, in, in speaking with Christians about you know, how do, how do you know that God is real? And, and sometimes Christians will talk about, well, because I, I see him in his creation. And, and yes, we know that's true, that God gives evidence of himself in creation. That's taught in the scriptures. 
But I think sometimes when, when we talk about that as Christians, to those who are unbelievers, and they don't, that doesn't quite jive with them, I don't think that we always recognize this perspective that Solomon's giving. If, if all I'm doing is looking for God in creation, well, when I see him from the Christian perspective, sure. But if I'm looking at it, the perspective from Solomon, that can be a really scary picture. Oh, yeah. So God is big, strong, mighty, distant, who does great thi- who could do great things, but also could oh, be utterly indifferent and crush. That is not, that is absolutely terrifying. And this gets into... Uh, apologetics have their place, but we also have to recognize the limits that, uh, and just have to know know what the limits are. Yeah, that's right. All right, so so we we've, we've talked about verse one then, and it's been a while since you've said the word death, Doctor Teets. So we probably should bring that back into the conversation very explicitly again. That's where Solomon begins to go then in verses two and following. He says, "Look, same thing happens to everyone, no matter which end of the spectrum you are on." What's what's he getting at? Verses two and three. It is life where we have no sense of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it, it too is. Yeah, it's the same for all. And and what makes this passage troubling is, at least at first glance, uh, it almost doesn't matter if you. It doesn't matter what what your relationship is with God. In that language of sacrificing, not sacrificing is that ultimately it doesn't matter because you're going to die. Uh, that's what makes this text really hard to deal with. Mm. And that's why we have to always keep in mind this is life under the sun. This is life where Solomon has bracketed out Revelation. or And wants to see, okay, no matter what happens, and this is a great antidote for, oh, the term that, the official theological term, I think, is what, a theologian of glory? Uh, the term that I prefer, uh, taken from a very happy book entitled The Old Testament is Dying, uh, uh, is that he refers to them as the happyologists, which let me tell you, I think that captures it far better than Theologian of Glory. It's a, uh, okay, I, I like depressing titles, I guess. The Old Testament is Dying. Uh, and he talks about the, the danger of happyologists. And in a world that denies death, that wants to say, if I do the right things, I'm going to be fine. I can fight. I can put off death for as long as possible. I can, I can avoid the signs of aging. I can cover up grain hair. Okay, that's something only I'm only I contemplate lately. But that's becoming dean of students. Is that we really want to be able to say that we can do something to avoid death? But ultimately, uh, death comes and tragedies come even to the most pious. And, and that's where the being a theologian of the cross is really important, as opposed to that trap of the happyologists. So since you brought up the term theology of glory and theology of cross, or, or happyologist, theology of cross, t- define those for us, make sure we're on the same page with those terms. Yeah, happyologist is actually the trap that if you do a very simplistic reading of Proverbs, you can fall into. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what both Job and, and Koheleth are countering. And think of these guys as uh, three guys having a great conversation over what is the nature of life. Yeah. And that's really our picture of this conversation of three, oh, I don't know, we would, oh, three, uh, let's not use seminary students, but three theologians just having this great conversation where they're going to solve everything. Is that the danger of Proverbs, if you read Proverbs, okay, the person who does this, good things will happen. And so therefore, if I am a Christian, God must bless me. There's your theologian of glory. It's an overreading of Proverbs. And that's why 
in the canon, we really do need to have Job and Ecclesiastes because they, they balance this out. Yeah. So that would be a good way to describe happyologists. And those examples are very easy to come up with. Uh, go to any popular Christian book section. Uh, being a happyologist apparently sells books because it's a pretty nice message. And, and this, in terms of American, especially in terms of American Christianity, is, oh, we, we like, it has definitely had its marketability, if you will. So if, if that's the theology of glory or the happyologist, then in contrast, what's the theology of the cross? The theology of the cross says God is known in suffering. And that is absolutely beautiful. Because it means Christ is known in suffering. Christ is known in the midst of our sufferings. And even in the midst of suffering, Christ cares for us. So when we're suffering, that doesn't mean that God is apart from us. And in fact, the fa- the, it's because we know that Christ has joined us in our suffering, then we actually do have the real comfort in our suffering, something more than just, you know, don't worry, be happy kind of thing, the happyologists that's, that are out there. Yeah, and, and, it's, and, and what this actually saves us from is a first, as a First Commandment violation, ultimately. Mm. Uh, the danger of a theologian of glory, a happyologist, I'm, I'm a, I like the word happyologist. That's good. I like that. I'm going to start using that. Yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Is that it actually becomes a matter of idolatry. Uh, God, must, God must do good things to me because, I've, because of what I've done. So you end up turning yourself into a manipulator of the divine. We have those in the Old Testament. They're called idolaters. Talk to anybody who's doing ball worship. Yeah. So this really does guard us against a, a first commandment violation. Mm. All right. So Solomon is helping us here, guarding us against the first commandment violation, keeping it very real. Death is coming to all these people. We're going to look more at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We talked to Dr. Ryan Teets this morning about Ecclesiastes 9. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, August 18th. We're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 10 with the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. He is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, prior to the break, we were talking about the fact that death comes to all, regardless of of who you are on the spectrum. I don't want to skip over that too quickly. Solomon mentions several different pairs Righteous, wicked, good, evil, clean, unclean, the one who sacrifices, the one who doesn't, the good one, the sinner, the one who swears, the one who won't. In terms of those various pairs, is there anything to, to pick out in 
what's going on there? Or is it just kind of he's naming opposite ends of the spectrum as many as he can think? To use one of my favorite literary terms, it's a marismus. He's picking two extremes to get everything in the middle. Uh, the Bible starts out with one. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The up stuff, the down stuff, and all the in-between stuff. And it's the same idea here. By picking the extremes, what Solomon wants to give us is just an absolute comprehensive picture of the impact of death. Mm. So it comes to all people, no matter... And I think, I mean, when you think about, like, righteous, good, clean the one who sacrifices, the good, those are all the ones who are, um, they're part of the true religion. They worship the true God. The the wicked, the evil, the unclean, those who don't sacrifice, those would be the idolaters. I mean, right, those are the two extremes that ultimately we're talking about. Exactly. And what does Solomon observe? They die suddenly no matter what. Okay. Yeah. So so they're all going to die. In verse 3, then, he says that's an, that's an evil thing that this same event happens to all. And the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Again, more, more. This is not happyology. Yeah, and uh, those first three words are even are even a little bit stronger. Uh, the, yeah, ESV has it. Uh, this is an evil. The issue is that phrase "bakol." It's in all uh, would be your kind of wooden wooden translation there. Uh, most likely, that's actually a superlative. So a better translation would be, "This is the." the worst evil mm. so and evil there that word raw we have to be really careful with it uh we hear the word evil we're thinking moral connotations here this could be simply absolute awfulness not necessarily moral just unpleasant at least the first usage here seems to be a little ambiguous but then it gets in but then the second usage of raw evil uh becomes much more uh, that's that's more of a moral quality there so that would be when it says later, as the ESV yeah. translates it, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Yeah, that they are abs. We, what, uh, what, what, what do we use in the order in the in the in the confession? I have a poor miserable poor sinner. miserable sinner. Yeah, right. and there we have it. So he gets into one, and it's important what he does here with death, and this is something we really do as people who are are mortal doomed to die, and who care for those who are dying and. By the and death here, uh, let's not limit it just to uh, assuming room temperature at the end, but we can get into every sort of loss that we have to grieve. Every time our finitude creeps up, any type of change of life. Uh, Judith Vior's book, Necessary Losses, covers it really well. Life is a series of deaths, of giving up. And it's really important for us to, one, name it, but also recognize it's awful. We can't sugarcoat it. And we don't can't say, well, it's fine. Well, no, actually, it really hurts. A- and we cry. We cry knowing in hope of a resurrection, but being able to ca- name evil evil here is really important. In a world that doesn't even know how to do a funeral home ad, home ad or a funeral ad anymore because there's celebrations of life. Let me show you all the wonderful things you can do. Mm. Yeah. 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 So Solomon, he names the enemy. He names the, you know, the evil that's in our hearts, the madness that's in our hearts. And then... They go to the dead. Yeah, and, and, this, uh, and a couple of phrases here. We got the we got the bnei haadam. Uh, children of men is what the ESV has. Yes. Yeah, children of man. Yeah. Children of man. Uh, think of this more in terms of Ezekiel's phrase, "son of man." Uh, okay. When Ezekiel uses it, it's an emphasis upon mortality. Hmm. When God calls Ezekiel ben adam, son of man, it's you a uh, you a uh, piddly mortal, hmm. and that's a good way to view it here, of emphasis upon mortality, and then we get that really odd word there. Uh, madness is how the ESV renders it. 
good news is only Solomon uses it here in Koheleth. So it's a fairly rare word. It probably actually describes more of an unbridled, unprincipled life. Anarchy would be probably a good way to describe it. There, there's okay. no order. There's no purpose behind it. So you run away. You run, run doing whatever, and just the absolute chaos of it. Hmm. So those are the. I mean, so that's the evil in their hearts to begin with, in the hearts of mortals. Then there's this this unbridled, you know, chaotic kind of life. But then they still die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the language of heart there to go with one of those kind of classic points that needs to be made. Uh, heart there is not feelings. If you want feelings, if you want to give a romantic card to your to uh, your spousal unit, you would give them a kidney or a spleen if you want to use Old Testament language. Heart here is actually will. So their will is bent upon evil. Their will is bent upon anarchy. Yeah. So then after that, they go to the dead. But then this is, and this is where maybe we were talking earlier, you're suggesting now maybe we're getting some sarcastic language in verse four. The ESV says, he who is joined with the, all the living has hope. So, I mean, are you taking that sarcastically then? Uh, one of the commentators I was looking at was saying sarcastically, now that we look at it, I may need to recant that statement. Because <sighs> okay. what he, he is indicating that... makes that me feel better. This, yeah, I, I, I was trying to make something else. That's the case. goal is to make I, me I, feel I, good. Let me just be up front. I, I, don't, I, don't buy, I don't buy what, uh, what Nycott was saying on that one. Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that here, yeah, there is something good to be alive. And part of being alive is actually knowing your spot. Mm. And that's that whole idea of, yeah, the, the living one has hope. Because, and oh, this actually is five. The living know that they'll die. Is that, yeah. okay, there is hope. Because you know what? It's Being alive is good. Being dead is bad. And, and I know that's a radical statement here. But that's <laughs> something that, good, that Solomon is really reminding us of. Although that that proverb is strange. Yeah, uh, I was hoping you could tell me what that means. A living dog is better than a dead lion, and I'm sorry for those of you who are pet parents, but uh, dogs in the Bible are not positive animals. And don't get me wrong, I'm a dog lover too, but but the idea of a uh, living dog, uh, dogs are not your cute pets. yeah, I was sputtering when the when a uh, morning show was on in the background about being about the wonders of pets being equal to children the other day, and it was I was I was sputtering, and my son accused me of being way too sarcastic that early in the morning. I said I'd been up for a couple hours; I was already awake. Is that a living do- dogs are negative? They're scavengers. These are not to call somebody a dog is an insult. So these a living awful creature is better than a dead awful creature. Uh, neither dog nor lion are positive images in the Bible. They're both really negative metaphors. Uh, lion okay. tends to be connected to warfare. Dogs are scavengers. So at least a better living scavenger. It's at least a little bit better than being a uh, a dead scavenger. Okay. All right. So, but then even then, as as why the living have it better off in this case, it's because they know they're going to die. So there's like, that's still. I mean, tying this to the reality of death, even when you're living. The reason that, that that's okay and that's good in this case is because, well, you know you're going to die. And now we're back to where we, we started with that. We need to reflect on our own mortality. Yeah, and there's it is wonderful realizing that we're not in, in charge and have limits. Uh, I would encourage, let, let me know if anybody's ever achieved that completely. I'm, I have yet to figure out the secret. But to, yeah, to know that, look, I'm, I'm a very 
I don't matter that much, but also the world doesn't depend upon me either. And that's good to not, uh, we want to be in control. The temptation to be in control, I dare say most of us are guilty of it one time or another, is is dangerous because yeah. it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the last guest that I had, we were, we were talking about this and he, he had read a quote that the, the cemetery is full of indispensable people. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. We, yeah. Amen. I think is about is the only thing I can say to that. That's right. That's right. So, okay. So the living, they know that they'll die. And then he begins to talk about, well, the, the dead, they, he says the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. The memory of them is forgotten. Everything about them, love, hate, envy, that's already perished. They've got no more share in what's done under the sun. What's what's the point of saying all that about those who've died then? Uh, and we, I cannot emphasize enough. We got to be, we got to be genre conscious on this one. Absolutely. Uh, this is, uh, if, if this was a prophet saying it, we would have, uh, we would have a seat of doctrine here. This is not a prophet. This is a sage, a wise, a wise guy, wisdom. He's, he's wrestling. He's talking. Is that what he really wants us to? Oh, so what he's stating here is this idea of uh, all the stuff in the world. And we, he's already gone through this. He's already gone through knowledge and all these things I had and I, I achieved. It's that the cliche, you can't take it with you. Mm-hmm. And you can't. Um, yeah, there's no more reward. All their stuff doesn't matter. They're, they're as dead. Uh, a rich man is as useful as a, as a, a rich dead man is as useful as a rich poor man. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and and keep in mind the genre with that, and also keep in mind that phrase that Solomon's been using about life under the sun. This is in terms of what he can observe and see. And and when you're looking at life under the sun, you know things when you're alive, and you don't when you're dead. Exactly, and that yeah, that tahata shemesh uh, under the sun that we cannot, you can never escape that in this book, and that's really important. This is all you could ever figure out, and it drives you. It drives you to God's revealed word. Mm, yeah. So, and, and the uh, reason, enough, oddly enough, in God's revealed word in Ecclesiastes, which kind of just right. hurt my head the moment I said that out loud. That's, that's right. But so, and the reason that that keeping the genre in mind is important, and keeping in mind what he says about life under the sun, is because that that means we're not going to look at these verses to make conclusions or doctrinal statements about our loved ones who have died in Christ and what their state of being is right now between death and the resurrection. Yeah, and that's key. And that's really where Ecclesiastes has caused a theological heartburn over the ages of, okay, uh, yeah, and that, oh yeah, so clearly, does this contradict Isaiah 26 or whatever and well, all kinds of good New Testament texts? There's my gratuitous Isaiah reference. I had to get one at least in today. I don't feel like I've done, oh, had a good day unless I get a gratuitous Isaiah reference in. You haven't mentioned Obadiah yet, though. Uh, you know, this, uh, I'm Obadiah free, I would have you know. The last two ones, okay, I couldn't, re- I'm like, wow, I can be Obadiah free today. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, for those of you who are listening to this and have not heard the other two, you'll understand what we're, what we're quipping about right now. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is one of those texts where, where, as you said, we're not going to use it to overthrow the very clear text from the prophets or say from the book of Revelation or other places, you know, where Jesus himself says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And, I mean, those are the clear texts when it comes to what life is like or what it is like for those who've died in Christ before the resurrection. This is not talking about that. 
Yeah, Ecclesiastes, at least uh, up until the final chapter, is not necessarily a book about, it's not the book about Christian hope. It's a book about, it's about Christian limits. And what does it mean to, what does it mean to live this, oh, live under the sun? Yeah. Yeah. So in right now, what it what it means to live under the sun is that regardless of who you are, you're gonna die. But while you're living, keep that in mind, and that's better than being one of those who's dead. And then in verse seven, now it seems he makes a, a bit of a turn, although we've heard him talk like this before. So go ahead, go and, and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. God has already approved what you do. So hey, know that you're gonna die and go and be happy right now. And what he points out, that we are mortal, finite, doomed to die, and dying creatures, because that's what it means for us to be on this side of this, on the, uh, as we, on this, uh, on this side of what, the new creation, or however you want to phrase it, is that, you know what, uh, God still gives gifts, and the physical world, albeit corrupted and limited, and boy, Solomon has let us have it on that a bunch in this text, uh, and oh, in the previous, previous chapters for that matter. Is that God? That earthly gifts are really given to us for our enjoyment, and that we, as God's people, should be able to 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 feast and enjoy it, and that's good. Uh, we get so excited that we we get there's a tendency among us a tendency to uh, poo poo the physical world, um, and that has caused all kinds of problems throughout the ages. But to say, yeah, you know what? It's uh, and celebration is a gift of God to be able to feast and to have a good meal. And uh, the the drinking language is also the language of celebration, and, and that and there's that's a wonderful gift. Uh, give us today our daily bread. It's mm. yeah, God cares for our needs, and we also get to celebrate them. Mm. And I, in this context, in chapter nine, there's something to the fact that this joy is given to us even with the knowledge that yes, we will die, yet I can still have joy right now. There's there's something to that. It's almost a little bit of, of laughing at death to to an I mean and I I think that brings in more than Solomon maybe says in Ecclesiastes but I think there's something to that that even with the knowledge yeah I'm going to die and that's an enemy that's going to attack me still I can be joyful and have the gifts of God right now and celebrate those things there's something to that yeah and note he says wine he's not saying drink your water or drink your beer he's saying drink your wine and the moment we get we get wine language here wine is the stuff connected to celebration and to actually celebrating what God has done. Uh, this isn't your everyday drink. This is, this is the stuff you do. This is what you drink uh, when God has done something wonderful for you. Like swallowing up death, Isaiah 25, right? Exactly. There's another and, Isaiah reference for you. And there's, and, uh, okay, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper with, with wine because Jesus instituted it that way. He all, but that, the reason Wasn't we also an accident, do it though. with wine. Yeah, the reason we also celebrate, we celebrate the Lord's Supper with wine is because of of how richly it's connected to the idea of this is this is our participation in God's victory feast. Mm, yeah. Now what in, in verse seven here where it says, for God has already approved what you do, what is what does that mean? Oh man, more theological heartburn at this hour in the morning, I guess. Uh is that we really are okay. Uh the the issue that Historically, uh, Christians Christians have had with it is oh it sounds like God's gonna oh oh God's an antinomian. Uh, that's not what Solomon's trying to do here. Rather, uh, that God actually approves of our of work. Hmm. And this is and, and for a brief moment, uh, death messes everything up. We I think we've talked about that a lot today. 
is that this is a moment of, you know what, back in Genesis 2, work was actually not toil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, work. I mean, and that's I've, that's something that we've noted in other studies. We looked at Psalm 127 when we were studying the Psalms in July, and it's come up here. Work is actually a gift of God, one that was given before the fall into sin. And so to enjoy our work now, it's a, almost like a, a taste of Eden here on this side of the fall. Yeah, hard for us to imagine, because at least to, oh, as much as I love the work I do, there are certainly moments in which it quickly becomes toil. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So so there is joy even in that toil with the faith of God. Now, verse verse 8 maybe needs a little bit more context. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. What is, what's Solomon saying there? We once again, the don't mourn, don't grieve, actually, actually, and it's more continue, continuation of the idea of celebration. Uh, you're not, you, you are doomed to die, to be sure. But right now, enjoy what you have. And yeah, and these are, this is not your everyday stuff. This is the stuff of, of the good, of oh, what? Celebrating the goodness of God. So the, the white garments and oil on your head, these are what, celebratory aspects of life for, yeah. for Solomon and the people of Israel? Celebratory. The Lutheran in me is dying to go baptismal garment here, but it just uh, the text doesn't sustain it. I've died to do it, though, for the record. I really want to do it right here. Well, and that's, I mean, that, when I when I read about white garments, too, the, the passage that comes to mind is Revelation 7, those clothed in white garments, you know, washed in the blood of the Lamb. But here it's it's really just the matter of these are celebratory feasting elements, and Solomon saying, go ahead with those celebratory things. Don't grieve in this case. And living life and appreciating the goodness is actually what we're supposed to do. So, and and this gets into the heart of what it means to, for us to contemplate our own death. Uh, not something our culture wants to do at all. Uh, it doesn't mean we're always going to be worried, always going to be depressed. Oh, my life is miserable because I'm going to die. That's not what it means. Actually, life is good because I know that I'm limited. And now I can, when these moments happen, I can savor them because that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Pastor, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller has talked about joy being the serious business of a Christian. And I think that that comes into play here. You know, we're talking, we've talked a lot about death and how serious that is. But that death and that reality and what Christ has done over death, that makes joy even more serious of a business for, for Christians. Yeah, and what I don't want us to come away with after our discussion today is death, death, death. Right. As I stated, as I kind of got into at the beginning, we do death and resurrection. And we, and I, I perhaps, like any good theologian, am overcompensating for, for other people. So I get excited. So death becomes an emphasis. But the only reason I'm emphasizing death is because death points us to the resurrection. And yeah. death is, yeah, right, and that's where ultimately our hope is. Right. That, yeah. So if, if we minimize what the enemy is, then we, we end up minimizing the joy but when we recognize the true magnitude of what the enemy is, then we can have the fullness of joy, not and, and in the resurrection, but then for right now. You know, I mean, what, what Christ will do on the last day in our resurrection then brings us joy right now, even as we know, hey, there's death, it's coming for me, but I'm going to be joyful now because I know what Christ has done. And I'll be okay when it happens, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to obsess on it. I'm going to recognize it. 
but I'm not yeah. going to worry to drive to drive home. I'm going to drive home. Yeah, and and that's really important. We can't let death. We can't. We can't let de- death be the victor. Yeah, that's right. Because death, does death is not the victor. Right? Death, yeah. you cannot. In my gladness, I am. Here you go. I am baptized into Christ. Oh man, there's there's one of the there's one of the greatest hymns in the hymnal right there. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So joy, no, n- let your garments be white. Keep the oil on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All that. You know, all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. So there's your dose of reality still. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I love Kohelet. Kohela Solomon. I, mean, I love it. Yeah, okay, go enjoy. Have a great time. Oh, by the way, your life's pointless. Uh, and, but that's in some ways good. And, and I know that's really bizarre for me to say. It sounded, okay, it sounded bizarre when I just said it. But it's good to recognize that you know what, and it gets back to a recurring theme today, is that yeah, we we don't matter, and you know, and our lives we have these great moments, we have those great relationships, relationships that ultimately will end one way or another. But so enjoy it. Uh, life's fleeting, though. Mm. You can't put your hope in it. And right. Solomon's not going to let us put our hope in anything we can reason our way through, or actually do ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, enjoy the life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your reign life he's given you in the sun. And, and this, I think, is important. That is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil. So this is the portion that God gives to you now. There is a portion that comes later, another inheritance, though, that comes in this life after the sun. Yeah, and for us to be able to see that through faith, I mean, that, that gets to the heart of, yeah, give us today our daily bread. Okay. God gives daily bread to everybody, as, as the Catechism says. But our job is, we get to see, oh, wow, look at what God has given for me. And look at how amazing, how God, how, how much, how God cares, in spite of us being uh, B'nai Adam, uh, children of men, puny mortals. Yeah, still, still God grants to us the fullness of his gifts, all these treasures, for this life under the sun and for the life that is to come as well. So right now, verse 10, Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with your might. Right? I mean, there, go ahead. Do that work right now. Do it with everything you have. Uh, there's no work or thought later after you die, so do it yeah. now. And, I mean, it's the, it's the parable of the guy, who, uh, uh, the guy who builds up his treasure houses and says, soul, you're going to be happy. And God says, you fool. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, and... And, and we have work to do. We have purpose. We have stuff to do. God has given us gifts that we get to use. And that's, and that's great. Uh, don't dawdle, though. And that's the one nice thing about, uh, about being contemplating our mortality. Yeah, well, and maybe, you know, maybe Paul is the good example of, of taking here Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, in the, the positive Christian manner, in the way that he does in Philippians chapter 1, where he, he says, you know, well, to live is Christ, to die is gain, and he, he knows there's something better by far if he dies, but he also knows that it's more necessary that he sticks around and works on behalf of the Philippians. Uh, maybe that's the, the Christian way to take this. Yeah, uh, and... Yeah, we, we, there's a reason for us to be still alive. And yeah, Paul does it. Yeah, that's Paul. Yeah, for me to die is gain. But I still have something. I Oh, God is still giving me stuff to do right now. Yeah, yeah. And so he's going to go ahead and do that with all his might right now before he dies when that work comes to an end. We got about, oh, two and a half minutes here, Dr. Teets. 
reflecting on this text from Ecclesiastes 9, help us to wrap things up, point us to, point us to Christ, even in, in a text that talked a lot about death. Yeah, I, I was nervous. You gave me a text. I apparently signed up for a text all about death before I realized what text I agreed to do. But this notion of being able to talk about death and recognizing that we are limits. And this draws us to not put our trust in ourselves, but instead to put us put our trust in the work that Christ has done for us. Ultimately, we are puny mortals, uh, doomed to die, but it's only because of what Christ has done for us that we are saved and that we look forward to the resurrection. Hmm. The Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and the Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He has been helping us today to study Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. Dr. Teets, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, you're more than welcome. Hopefully the next text doesn't involve so much death. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Death is coming, though. It comes to all, whether you are righteous or unrighteous, clean or unclean, whether you worship the true God or an idolater, all die. And yet Solomon says this is good, that we would reflect on our own mortality so that we might receive as Christians the good things that God has for us right now as our portion under this life under the sun, trusting in him as the one who has conquered death, the one who will bring us to that life after the sun in his son, Jesus Christ. Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you and for me. Live with that hope now, awaiting the glory of the resurrection in the life of the world to come. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Ecclesiastes chapter 9, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also download the KFUO app from your favorite app store, and you can use the open mic feature there to send a message to us. Either way, it's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.